Hi, I'm Joseph Lidster, and this is the Sirens of Audio. You have the subscriber-only release, The Four Doctors, Me One? Uh, oh, I have. I have indeed, Me Two. Do you like it? Do I like it? Well, I've never heard it before, but yes, yes. I suppose you could say, I like it. We're very proud of it, Me Too. Aren't we very proud of it, Big Finish subscribers? Uh, what happens now, sir? You said that once you had a copy, it would enable you to restore the natural balance of your collection throughout the whole of your Big Finish app. That is correct, me one. So, will you release the four doctors to me that I may do this? Uh, certainly, me too. Yes, certainly, of course. Uh, four doctors. I transfer... Could I ask you something, me too? Yes, me one. It's just that the episode is already attached to the Demons of Red Lodge. Couldn't you just buy that as part of a subscription now? Yes, me one. But I must have the story for safekeeping. It is an awesomely powerful story. Oh, yes, sir, yes, and mustn't be allowed to fall into the wrong hands. I quite understand, sir, yes. The four doctors, I transfer... What about the subscribers who got this in the first place? What about them, me one? Well, as you know, sir, The Four Doctors was in fact promised to be a subscriber-only release. And if the story is transferred to you now, it means that they'll lose that exclusivity forever. That is, of course, regrettable. Very regrettable. But with the fate of my collection at stake... Quite. You can't be too precious. I quite understand. The Four Doctors. I command that you stay exactly where you are. Me one. You have fully activated all of your phone and cloud security. We can't be too careful, can we? And it would be a terrible tragedy for audiophiles the world over if it turned out I couldn't detect a newbie. Me one, release the story to me immediately. Unable to distinguish between a subscriber and non-subscriber? Look! Don't you see? A new subscriber would never have such a callous disregard for exclusive content. Me one, you shall die for this! I think not. Remember, the Four Doctors is all mine, rage all you like. I shall destroy you for this. I will disperse every negative review of your podcast to the furthest reaches of the internet! Ah, well, I wish I could stay and watch you try. You know how it is, stories to hear, episodes to review and people to interview. When I give the signal, cue credits. Now! G'day audiophiles, this is the Sirens of Audio, the show that explores the universe of Doctor Who and the audio medium. I'm Dwayne. And I'm Philip. G'day Dwayne, g'day audiophiles. How you going Philip? We're doing a daytime recording, it's always risky when we do that kind of thing, so let's all hope it goes to plan. 
Grace, I'm just vagued out as normal. I'm still totally <laughs> in holiday mode. Um, <laughs> for people not in Australia, basically Australia closes down from Christmas Eve until the 26th or 27th of January. So basically everyone just has a month off. And even if you're going into work, you're not actually doing anything. But I'm, I, I'm literally having a month off. So I've, actually, I, I'm popping into work for, an, uh, for a day tomorrow just to do some yearly planning, but I'm taking the rest of the week off and going up to Queensland. And so I'm very much in holiday mode and my brain has gone and it's not come back yet. <laughs> this could be interesting, could be fun, yeah. or it could be an utter disaster. We'll Today on the show, we are going to be speaking with Joe Lidster, who was one of our very first guests on the podcast oh, almost four years ago now. And uh, you weren't uh, on the podcast at the time, Philip, so it's a good opportunity for you to uh, have a chat with Joe. Yes, well, I've been wanting to chat with Joe the whole time because I really love his work. I love his writing. And so, yeah, when I uh, saw this opportunity, I decided to jump at it. Yeah, excellent. So we'll share that with you in a moment. But we've got a couple of things to do first. Uh, the first thing, Philip, is I think we should probably talk about uh, the events that's coming up in uh, just a few weeks' time. Yes, in no time at all. So um, those of you who are in Australia, um, in Sydney on the 10th and in Melbourne on the 18th, we have Wendy Padbury um, and also her actor daughter, Charlie Hayes, um, daughter of Melvin Hayes, for those of you who know It Ain't Half Hot Mum. He was a big star of that. And so yeah, we have those... Um, two coming out so yeah they'll be arriving very soon so if you haven't got your tickets make sure you get them because it's it's going to be an amazing event wendy as you've probably heard already um if you listen to last week's podcast is full of energy and excitement and uh really worth talking to and enjoying so make sure uh, you got your tickets and the stuff that we talked about on the podcast last week we won't be covering any of that we'll be only talking yes. about different stuff to that so, i was going to mention that yeah yeah, yeah. Not, nothing so, that we talked about last week uh, will be brought up, or maybe quickly in passing, but there's a whole heap of stuff to talk to about, about Doctor Who, the show proper, um, some more stuff to talk to, to about with Big Finish, but also Tales of the TARDIS, and um, there's yeah a lot of other special surprises we have in store. Okay, so if you head over to sirensofaudio.com, you can grab your tickets for those events in Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, very much looking forward to hearing about those, Philip, because unfortunately I won't be able to make it, but I know from our past events uh, they are going to be something very, very special. And uh, I'm looking forward to later in the year coming to, in person to some of our events, Philip, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a, there's um, um, there's going to be an exciting one in October. So just uh, be prepared for that, guys, um, October. Okay, so before we talk to Joe Lidster, there is one more thing I want to do. And you know what that is, Philip? I don't want to do this, Dwayne. You've made me nervous before we started. Yeah, I know. I told you it was going to be a good one, but we're doing it anyway. We're jumping down the rabbit hole. Let's go. <laughs> right, we've got a, a, a very well-known writer joining us today for the podcast, and we've talked about this in the past, but I want to do something a little bit different today. I want to talk about the various writers that we have on Big Finish, some of the standout writers that have been that have done lots of stories. I want to get your thoughts on what you think their style is. So I'm going to throw random names at you. And I just want to I'll, I'll cut out the bits where you have to think about it, Philip. Don't worry. But uh, 30 seconds or less, 
on what you think their style of writing is because each of them have some quite unique styles. So what are some of their quirky uh, idiosyncrasies that you look out for when you see these writers' names? So I'll start with, let's start with an obvious one, Joe Lidster. Joe's going to do something always interesting with characters. Joe loves playing around and making unusual characters in unusual places do unusual things. And so for me, when I'm listening to Joe Lister's story, I'm always listening to see what is he doing with the characters and how is he manipulating them to provide a really unusual and sometimes slightly dark story. Sometimes. I would say most hey. of them. He puts a... <laughs> Hey, if you give me yeah, but... time to prepare, I would have, you know, I would have looked through better their stories and had a better answer. You, you're putting me on the spot here, Dwayne. Yeah, I know. It's okay. I would say uh, that undoubtedly uh, he deals with death in most of his stories in some shape or form. Uh, what about this one? Uh, someone more recent, Lizzie Hopley. Lizzie's got a bit of a she's got a bit of a macabre street to it too at times. Um, Lizzie can actually do a lot of comedy, and she can be very light-hearted and, and very easygoing, or it can be very dark and sinister. So Lizzie actually plays around with form quite a bit. Um, I find Lizzie is very her language is very now. Um, so one thing about Lizzie is it, it always sounds like today. It sounds very present, and I think that's one of the things that Lizzie does really well. What, what would you say about Lizzie? I think I'm still getting used to Lizzie's style, and I think I feel in her, maybe it's from speaking with her last year, but she has a passion for stories. So I see her name, and I get quite excited because I think this story could go anywhere. She she plays around with a lot lots of different styles. So I find her name one of the most exciting ones because I'm not 100% sure what I'm going to get. But I'm, yeah, usually, yeah. I'm usually very um, pleasantly surprised. Yeah, well, like I said, I'm, yeah, you're never quite sure which way she's going to go. Yep. What about this one? Nick Briggs. <laughs> um, I know one of the things that you like to say about Nick Briggs, and I think it's pretty accurate, is he doesn't like to storytell in a straight line. He does lots of flashbacks, lots of turnarounds. Um, he does action adventure really well. So I, I do They're the two him. styles. Yeah, they're exactly the two styles that I was uh, that I think of when I think of him. Yep. Yeah, so I, I do love how he does action. And he managed to get, with a tiny cast, so much big action out um, and just epic. So his stories are often epic and big and also just in terms of how he storytells, often um, mucking around with flashbacks, with time, with um, how he does order, which is just something that I, I really like about what Nick does. And here's what you say uh, then? Uh, no, you're exactly on the same level with me. So we'll go to the next name. How's this one? John Dorney. Okay, I love John stuff, and how can I? I was, I was listening to one the other day, and before I got that, I knew it was the John Dorney. Oh, it was the Doors in the in the Christmas Eighth Doctor series. John loves to play around. I think because he writes so much, he likes to play around with throwing in things in a bizarre way and just playing around with form. So, as I said, in the Christmas one he released in December, it's done in twenty four scenes. Each scene's a door for Christmas Advent. So, you know, scene one, scene two, but it's, it's door one, door two. And it's actually announced. They actually announced the doors. There's the one, of course, he did in Stranded in the last box set, which runs backwards. So he starts at the last event and runs uh, runs backwards. He does the one with palindrome. the palindrome working backwards and forwards again. Um, in there's a, a, it's a, it's a unit story where he tells the same story twice in two different actions 
at the same time. And so if you actually, I'm pretty sure if you actually played them at the same time, part one, act one, act two, you'd have the same explosions and things happening along the way. So John just loves to play with the literary, literary style. But more than that, in terms of his storytelling, he just, he just loves a good story uh, in terms of um, excitement, beats. He's, he's really good with beats along the way. And as I say, there's, there's a thing about John Dory now that when I start listening to John Dory, I know it's him. Um, once again, he can be very funny, but also he can um, he just he just rockets along with storytelling. I, I don't know how he produces what he produces. What, what else would you say, Dwayne? The only other thing I would add to that would be he loves to try and write something that is going to generate a huge reaction from the audience, yeah. and he often succeeds. Uh, you'll see it go off on Twitter uh, when when he does something outrageous. And he, he absolutely personally loves doing that kind of thing. So that's something I always look out for too in his stories. Uh, what about this one? Jonathan Morris. Jonathan, you're always in such reliable hands. Um, that's the exact word I was going to say. Yeah, we're on the same wavelength here. There you go. With, with Jonathan, you, you just know you're going to get a dependable, um, logical story with everything well thought out. And so... The different beats to keep leading to the next scene. So it it tends to be. I mean, because once again, he does play around with form a bit too when he wants to. But generally speaking, you sort of know you're, you're getting a logical story that's going to be told from different characters' points of views. That's going to lead you on to, to the climax. But it's always done in logical steps. Um, and and along the way, he does a lot some lovely character character work. He knows his companions and doctors really well. And so I think in terms of voices, when you hear them speak. Um, I think it was there's a, a um, one with Tegan I was listening to recently, and just a boy he captures Tegan's voice so well, and Tegan the fifth Doctor in their conversation with each other, um, but he can write for any Doctor, any companion, and you just know it's going to be a dependable, strong story. Yeah, similar say? from me. Reliable is the word I would use. He he has a similar. I, I see his name and I get a similar feeling about the story as I do with Lizzie Hopley. I'm not sure where it's going to go. He can go anywhere as well yeah. with his stories. The difference between him and Lizzie is, as you said, he is the fan. Lizzie is is the storyteller. Well, they're both storytellers, but she's not a, so much a fan. Um, so, yeah, uh, you're spot on with uh, Johnny Morris, I think, uh, there. What about this one? Matt Fitton. Matt, Matt is the new breed in so many ways. and. Um... I don't know Matt's story. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to think that. Matt is very, always energetic. I think maybe that's the word I want to use. His stories are just full of energy and vigor and youth. Um, and often they they climaxes to things. So it's usually he often writes in box sets and he tends to you know, write first or last. Um, but I always find Matt is just full of excitement and energy and vigor, I think, is the, is the, probably the words I'd use for his writing. What would you say for Matt? I think in terms of style, you're going to get a story which could be quite complex, but when you look, and, and it could be so complex that it sort of goes over my head, but when you look at all the little details in it, they all fit perfectly. He's a stickler. For if there is a, a writer who likes to stick with canon, well, internally the big finish canon, he is the one. So he is a stickler for that kind of thing, and I think he has different series bibles. People go to he's that's why he scripts at it so much, is because he knows what's going on 
in every sort of strand. I don't know how he does it. His memory must be so good at doing these things. But I think he also writes it all down. Uh, from what I understand, people's people have said. Um, so yeah, I think his attention to detail in all the storytelling that he does probably stands out to me the most. Mm. Not, all right. He's often a twist his run towards the end too, which I think yeah, uh, really well yeah yeah. What about Lisa McMullen? Ah, okay. I'm really enjoying Lisa's stories, but I, you know what, I don't have worked out exactly where I think she's coming from all the time. Once again, a lot of variety. I think I have. I think I have. Okay, so tell me what you think about Lisa. I see, I agree with you. I I love her stories, but I think a lot of her. When I say but, there's no but to it. It's just the fact that her stories, a lot of them, come from a very personal place. I think she writes a lot of stories that are very cathartic. <laughs> you know, bases them a lot on her personal experiences, and um, I think that comes through in her storytelling. She does that quite a lot. Uh, almost almost therapeutic for her. Um, grief and horror in there too, doesn't she? In terms of yeah. Yeah. So I think for me personally, that's what I pick up in, in her style. But once again, very good. And she's been responsible for bringing in a, uh, some other writers that we really like too, like Kat Armitage and no doubt others as well. She, hmm. um, I was going to say, a lot of, it feels almost autobiographical how she writes a lot of her stories. Yes. It feel like it's coming from a really yeah, personal, close space. And they are often. Yeah. Yep. What about... Well, he doesn't write for them anymore, but he was very influential in the early days. Rob Shearman. Black. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think for Rob, it's, it would always be black humour and yeah, very funny, but very black humour. And, I mean, I think he's a sheer genius. I mean, I think Rob Shearman's writing is poetry. Every time he writes, it, he hasn't done a lot. I think every single piece of writing he did for Big Finish is just poetry. His use of language is florid, but beautiful. I mean, um, the Penguin one, the Holy Terror, um, the, the way his characters speak, it is, it is, and, and Jubilee is the same too. It's unrealistic language, but it is heightened language. It is, and it's just beautiful to listen to. I can just sit and dwell it, but it is so funny, but embarrassingly so because it's so dark. And Very. so he, yeah, and you know, you know, seeing Daleks in in Jubilee, and you know, the midgets who are too tall, so they lock off, you know, top top of their legs just to fit them into the casings. It's just purely awful um, when you think about what he's done, and yet you can't help smiling at it. But he he deals with that horror and deals with that, that so that horror so well, and um, brings the Doctor in. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, all these stories. I, I could go on with all of them. I would just rave about all of them. Um, because I just adore them, you know, throwing shirts, so throwing um, Times Midnight. Um, and I guess for you as a theatre lover, he is probably the most theatre-based in his storytelling. You could see most of his plays done on the stage. Yeah. And, and, and the, you know, he, none of his plays particularly, I'm just saying, in, in, I mean, Shirts was probably the most realistic in terms of realism, but that's, that's an, well, two people blending into each other. It's not realistic. But in terms of the, the theme of love, and you know he brought that his honeymoon, I think, well, there's a bizarre honeymoon he had. Um, but his other plays all have such a bleakness to them all. Um, but such un the characters are so abnormal. Um, so aside from the Doctor and Companion who happen to be in it, every other character is so heightened. And so they're, they're over the top. So it is almost like a theatrical production of something, you yeah. know, just yeah, O O T T all the way. 
but so engaging and entertaining because of it. Anything else you'd add with Rob? Well, yeah, we're talking big finish writers, but I still rate Punchline, even though that's uh, that's not big yeah. finish. Uh, I still rate that one as probably my favourite script of his that he's done for a Doctor Who related audio. It's not officially Doctor Who, but uh, absolutely brilliant that one. Um, so yeah, you, you, you're spot on the money with him. Uh, I, I thought that's what you would say, and you did. All right, here's one. Um, he's coming up very soon on the show. We've 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 got him in the next uh, two or three weeks coming up on the podcast. We've never had him before, but Eddie Robson. Uh, uh, um, Eddie has a real lightness of touch. I I really love an Eddie script because uh, it just captures you straight away. But it has a real is innocence the wrong word. Um, it, you just know you're gonna have a good time with Eddie and his characters when he, when he writes a script, and um, he, he's really thoughtful in terms of how he how he produces his characters, how they relate. He's got a, a nice, I mean, almost opposite of Rob. He's got a real niceness to him. Um, and I just love his lightness of touch in terms of his, his script writing, his storytelling, nice and fast. Well, what would you say about Eddie? Yeah, ex exactly that. Um, it's he, he does have a, an interesting sense of humour as well. Like the, there's one story recently that always sticks out in my, in my memory, the, the slaying of the writhing mass. I thought that was a, a really good Eighth Doctor story that he wrote. Yeah. Um, he, he, and he's, you know, he's he specialised in the Eighth Doctor over the years and uh, written some, some very good stories for that team. So, um, yeah, looking forward to sharing that chat with Eddie Robson in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah. Uh, what about this one? He hasn't done too many, but he's done some pretty profound stories. Nev Fountain. Nev, okay. Um, I guess firstly, just humour. I think Nev is just so funny with his writing and comeback lines are so brilliant. For me, is it um there's a story where he does actually use his name. It's, it, it looks like it's four episodes, written by four different people with four different characters. And oh, that's the blood on blood on Santa's claws. Blood on Santa's claws. Um, which is just hilarious, and in terms of of just so funny. I think the other thing about Nev is when he writes, he does a lot of writing now for uh, Nicola Bryant, of course, he, who's his real life partner. He writes Perry with such depth and richness that Perry has just come alive for me. Um, the Companion Chronicle that he did for her, um, in terms of you know, explained two Perrys and how she survived and the situation after Eucharist and what happened after the Doctor left her in Mind Warp. Um, basically, which are a number of stories, but there's the, there's, cause there's a six, the Doctor Bell box set as well with Perry, and he writes a story in there, which is just hilarious. Like, I still listen to it and laugh all the way through it. So I think I'm going to laugh out loud. It's often going to be a Nev script. You, Dwayne? Oh, absolutely. Uh, he, did a, he did a lost story a couple of years ago. I think it was called The Doomsday Contract. He adapted that. Um, Based on a based on an early script, and uh, I thought that was absolutely sensational. Nev has a way of looking at the world that's different to me, but when he but when I look through at the world through Nev's eyes, I go, "Oh, that's that's so true." I, I wish sometimes I could look at the world through his eyes and just see how funny the place is, <laughs> and he and he puts that into his scripts, and I I love that about his work. All right. How about this one? You're gonna you're gonna like talking about this writer, James Goss. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, well, actually, I think you put the two humours ones together. I think the other thing about, I mean, James, like Nev, 
is just a very funny writer. Um, but he, he can actually punch a real pack a real punch with his humor. So, I mean, for James, for me, I mean, just Torchwood for about a year, he was writing every Torchwood story, and they were utterly brilliant and utterly different all the time. Um, James, James just has a really great sense of humor, and he brings his humor out, but in sometimes, yeah, in different ways. So sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's dark. Um, but I'm always going to be entertained by a James Goss script and usually surprised by the ending. James has an ability to twist an ending in a very unusual way. So I think that'd be the other thing that would strike me about a, a James Goss script. What do you say about James? I agree with you. The humour is great, but he also has the ability to do something brand new and unexpected consistently, time after time after time. It's like, wow, how does this guy think of this stuff? Mm. Um, so he's very, very talented when it comes to uh, story creation, I think, yeah. uh, which is which is a good thing. And uh, it's probably what's been the driving force behind Torchwood for such a long time. Yeah, I'm mm. looking forward to his Target book coming out because he's done one of the, he's one of the 60th anniversary specials. He did the giggle, the, didn't he? I think it might be the giggle who's done, yes. So I'm yep. looking forward to hearing that and um, yeah, we're reading that and to see how he came out with the whole novel form as well. So we've gone through quite a few authors now. I've got one to go. And sadly, this one announced that he was finishing up with Big Finish. I'm not sure if there's any more to come or how many how many more there is, um, but he's moving on to other things. Tim Foley. Uh, um, see, once again, Tim's, Tim's just charming. <laughs> so I, I like Tim as a person. Um, Tim's writing. Once again, just he's he's so many different styles, so many different across all the different storylines he's done, so the different programs that be finished put out. Um, he's just so reliable, and I think he just writes once again character really well, and he writes the regulars really well. So I think in terms of um, just understanding the character, the main characters, understanding the regular cast, he just hammers that really well every time. Uh, but always comes up with a creative story and yeah just a lot of fun it, 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 yeah he's part of that young bunch of lots of lots of energy there what do you say about tim yeah it, he he has a tendency which is a good thing to to write really intimate character pieces uh gets right into the into the characters which is something i love on audio sometimes i struggle a bit with action and uh you know detailed sci-fi or something that's very canon heavy uh but when you're just dealing with character um tim is a master at that but he also has a he has a a great storytelling style as well and and manages to surprise me with uh, with most stories that he does i mean one of my favorite torchwoods is is the uh, tropical beach sounds and other relaxing seascapes which he wrote which was a, a totally experimental and a fascinating uh torchwood story uh that was just starred michael palin and uh if, if anyone hasn't heard that you must hear that and uh you know that sort of heavily goes into all those characters in detail intimately so that you don't even notice that they're not there uh doing the play it's michael palin you'd think they're there and that's what tim foley's great at i think it's a shame that he's uh, that he's moving on in a way but you know he's got to do other things i guess yeah, keep building his career. He's only a young man. Yeah. All right. Well, that's that's a, a little list of uh, some standout authors. I think um, uh, 
that uh, I'm glad we had this chance to talk about, Philip, and you did better than you thought you would. Oh, stressful, though. <laughs> I would, I'd rather have done some preparation for that, let me tell you, but that's okay. All right, let's jump on out of the rabbit hole, and we are going to bring on Joe Lidster in just a moment. But before we do, I thought I'd throw on a trailer for Terra Firma. The, uh, the first Eighth Doctor adventure set back in our universe out of they came out of the Divergent universe. So here it is. Doctor Who. Terra Firma. They are coming. You always knew they would. And that is important. Important. Being, being you. Knowing what you are and being. Well, yes. Wouldn't you agree? Who are you? Who are you really? You destroyed my world. I have created a new one. I was completely alone, Doctor. Alone because of you. Perhaps, Doctor, it is not your destiny you should fear. Perhaps. It is your past. I remember! We need the Daleks. We need one universe, one mind, a single pure Dalek mind. We do not need you, and yet like you, we must cower here in the darkness. We must cower and await our final destiny! So long-term writer for Big Finish and Sarah Jane Smith, Torchwood, and also many other mediums, including in the theatre, is Joe Lidstar. Joe, thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, listen, it's great to have great to have you on again. Um, as I just mentioned before, you have been on once before, but I wasn't on then, and so I was really keen mm. to have you on. So thanks for joining us again. That's all right, thank you. Philip was having so, major FOMO. Major FOMO. <laughs> <laughs> I do that. So listen, I want to start back at the very beginning though, because I'm really curious to know. Um, just tell us a bit about where you grew up and a little bit, a bit about your family, and I want to know how you started writing. Sure. Yeah. I was, um, well, I was born down south in Brighton, but um, very early age, we moved up north um, to a town sort of near Hull, middle of nowhere. Um, Hull. Very picturesque, but a bit you a bit League of Gentlemen, slightly. You know, there was a sense of you, you're never going to leave or you do leave and you escape. Um, I think things are better now. It's a, it's a, it's a lovely place to go back to. Um, and yeah, so I grew up there. Um it's all fairly uneventful. A very normal childhood. <laughs> so, what what made you? I know you've done some acting too. What 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 event? What was the part of you that wanted you to be creative? Was it as a writer? Was it acting? It was acting originally. So it was I joined like a local drama group and um, even the operatic society, which was lots of old people and me and my girlfriend. Said so, so long ago that was. Um, and yeah, I, I think there was a sense of escapism, wanting to escape, you know, various things. Um, and then as I got older, I 
we did a school production of Amadeus, the play Amadeus, and it was really, really good um, for a school production, especially. Uh, and I played Salieri and it was amazing. And I got lots of praise for it. But what I realised was that I was only able to be like that because of the script. And that got me interested in the actual writing. And at the same time, losing confidence in my ability on the stage. I was like, well, perhaps I've always, I've always enjoyed writing stories. I wrote stories in English a lot. Perhaps I could write, you know, I'm probably never going to reach the heights of Amadeus, but perhaps I could try and write good stuff for actors to do. Um, and that's really sort of where it sprang from. So when you left school, did you study writing? What did, what did you go on to do? Um, so when we were doing our A-levels, which is higher education at school, um, from sort of 16 to 18, for some reason, it was a thing at the time, you had to do an extra module. So you did your three or four A-levels, which were your choice, but you had to do an extra something, which was like sports or learning how to use a computer. Um, but they also did a thing called the media. Uh, they did media, um, which was a GCSE. And I, my sort of aspirational, ambitious self was like, well, if I do that, I get an extra GCSE. That looks good on my CV and everything. Um, and also media, that's like telly and stuff. I like telly, that'll do. So I did that media GCSE. And I think it was about four of us, did it? And I realised that the way we analysed writing in English literature, the way we analysed Pride and Prejudice, Tess of the Dubfuls and everything like that, all of that applies to TV and film and adverts. I remember, and it just kind of slightly blew my mind. It's all really obvious stuff, but you know, in those days before the internet and in a sort of northern town in the you know midst of nowhere, it kind of slightly blew my mind that oh, the reason those people in that advert look happy is because if I buy that product, then I'll be happy. You know, obvious stuff. But it really interested me, and I realised that that sort of was what I wanted to get into, um, and so I went to you. Um, well, university, it was a college uh, up in Carlisle, sort of on the Scottish border, and did a media degree, um, which was really interesting, um, really good for me personally, because it got me to meet new people and, and everything like that. Um, I had the best time uh, going to clubbing and all sorts of stuff, really, you know, lived my life. Um, uh, but the only problem was it doesn't tell you how to get a job. So we sort of, and again, I think it's hard for you to understand that before the internet was really a thing it was difficult to know how to do stuff where to go and, and and do stuff so me and some friends moved to newcastle and i worked in telesales um and as i was leaving newcastle because i was spending all my money i was i was meant to be paying off my uni debts and instead i was in making spending a lot more because i was going out all the time um i then moved home for a little bit and then i was moving to ireland and before I moved, I realised that I had a story idea and I thought I knew about Big Finish. I knew they existed. Um, I think I'd heard one. Um, again, I did, you know, I, they, they, just, they just weren't in your everyday shops. And if you didn't have much internet access and you didn't have a credit card and you didn't have a lot of money, um, they weren't, you know, they weren't expensive. But I mean, I had no spending money. Um, so I'd only heard one, but I knew they had, I kept up to date on the news of them. Um, so I knew they were doing the Seventh Doctrine Ace and I had this story idea. Um, no, I knew, they, sorry, I knew they were doing Colin and Nicola because that was who I pitched for. Um, and I thought, well, why don't I just send in this story idea, see what, see what they think? And that's where it all started, really. 
Okay. Can we, let's go back before we hit the finish. So obviously you like Doctor Who. So mm. when did your interest in Doctor Who start? Um, it's different. It sort of came from two two ways. So I loved it as a kid. Um, one of my first memories is Trial of a Time Lord. I remember vague memory of the Doctor and Perry running through the woods in mind. No, the Mysterious Planet, the first one. That's Mysterious Planet, isn't it? Um, and then I have quite strong memories of the Vervoids. Uh, they terrified me. Um, and I have a very clear memory of my mum working out which Megarian why they'd been poisoned because she was a big Agatha fan. So she is able to work out stuff like that. Um, and that was really cool. Um, but at the same time, as I was enjoying Doctor Who, and I really, you know, it was, it was, I must get home in time for Doctor Who type thing. Um, we were, me, my brother, and my sister, I think it was all three of us did it. We would get the, um, our local library had the Peter Davison hardbacks. And we would read those, take them out, read them, and I loved them. I remember loving Warriors of the Deep. <laughs> it was a bit of a shock when I saw it, but the book is amazing. Um, and I don't think I really connected that the two things were the same. You know, I don't think I really made the connection that those books we read were the same as that because it was a different man on the front. And you know, are you about eight, are you about eight or nine at this stage? Yes, yeah, it would have been eight, nine, ten, and you know, again, it's so I keep saying it, but again, with no internet, you, you can't just go on somewhere and go, "What is this Doctor Who thing?" So I don't think I made the connection between the two things at all. And then we had a school bookshop, and I think I bought my brother a the Leisure Hive or something like that. But then they had on the shelf, they got a copy of Dragonfire, and I was like, "I've seen that." That's that story. Oh, it's all the one thing, you know. And I suddenly made the connection between the books, and that the teacher who ran the bookshop introduced me to a boy uh, who was a big, big Doctor Who fan. He had Doctor Who Tipex on his back, <laughs> um, and we became, you know, lifelong friends. And he introduced me to the whole backstory of Doctor Who. He had the videos and things like that. Um, and then, you know, I wrote to the BBC saying, "Please, can you tell me about Doctor Who?" And they would send you a a list of all the stories with the companions next to it. And do that, I started to get things like the Doctor Who programme going. I got really into the sort of, the um, just the whole 26 years of it and how exciting it was that all this thing was sort of one big story. Um, and yeah, that was really it. Um, and then I was the right age when the New Adventures came out um, and I loved reading. So my mate didn't do the new adventures, but I did the new adventures and the missing adventures. Got them all every month. Um, I haven't reread them since. Um, I'm sure some of them haven't aged very well, but I loved them. I adored them. I loved the connection of the, the Earth Empire and all the the world building that went on in it. Um, so yeah, then I think so. You, that was you it, really. it was own... just it was going to be. Are you writing your own fantasy this time? Are you starting to write your own stories now at this time? Um... No, I don't think. I've got a feeling me and my mate once recorded something. I can't remember what I've got, but I never really did the fan fiction thing. Um, just didn't. I don't know why. Really, it seems a bit odd. You think I would have done, but yeah, no, I didn't. Didn't ever do fan fiction. What I was trying to do was, I remember I was trying to write a missing adventure. Uh, you know, because I think I knew that the. Well, I knew that, let's say, Paul Cornell was this new young person who hadn't been, you know, had written in with an idea. So I knew that they somehow accepted 
people writing in and so what i thought was i'll try and write a missing adventure and send it in because i didn't think i'll write a synopsis or a treatment it's like i'll write the whole book and send it in and guess what being, being, being at university and going out a lot i didn't get very far into the book um i think i wrote one chapter um and it was vaguely sort of what ended up becoming a big finished story i wrote years later called the reaping um it was sort of that it was about the doctor and perry um so I think that sort of was always in my head. And that's when I thought, well, I could try pitching a story to Big Finish. But at the same time, me and a friend were sending showreels to a news channel who were looking for runners. We were, you know, we were basically blasting any kind of media job, applying at all sorts of production companies, going to any kind of talks we could go to. Um, so it wasn't necessarily that I knew I desperately wanted to be a writer, but that was one of the options that I really wanted to do. Um, and yeah, then that's it. Certainly, I do to big finish. Just so a little sidestep here. Um, you mentioned that you enjoy TV as a medium. What kind of television during the eighties and nineties was influencing you outside of Doctor Who? Um, I love the soaps, all the soaps. A big fan, um, especially Dynasty. Really loved Dynasty. Loved Murder She Wrote. I think I quite liked that sort of American. For us at that time, very glossy. Um, you go back and watch it, it doesn't look that, all that. But, you know, at the time, it was just this whole of the world. Anybody who had a swimming pool on telly, that was so aspirational. So Neighbours, it was just like, imagine having a swimming pool. Um, I mean, I'd still love a swimming pool. I don't have a bit of a garden anymore. So, you know, a swimming pool would be lovely. Um, so anything like that, I loved anything murder mystery. I got that from my mum. She's she's a big fan of Agatha Christie, and I got that. So I was a big fan of Miss Marple, Poirot. And I say murder, she wrote um, any kind of murder mystery stuff I was into. Um, and I mean, the very thing is I when I was growing up, my bedtime was eight o'clock every night, weeknight, well, weekday nights because of school and everything. So I would go to bed at eight o'clock, which would be when Coronation Street would finish or whatever show I was watching at the time. Except on Monday nights, I was allowed to stay up and watch a uh, British sort of. It's not a quiz show, but it's called The Krypton Factor, um, where sort of office work for office workers would answer questions but there was an observation round and there was an obstacle course and if you go back and look at it it is so funny and mundane and dated and glorious um but I was allowed to step on a Monday night till half eight so I could watch the Krypton Factor so it's a bit nerdy in that respect but um yeah but I, I love things like the A-Team you know I, I, any kind of telly I just absolutely adored I think it was a thing of it was a thing me and my brother and sister did together. We weren't very similar in any way, shape or form. You know, we had very different lives and, and still do to this day. But um, that was the one thing we had in common. I remember us, the three of us sitting and watching Murder, She Wrote. I remember the three of us sitting and watching The A-Team. I remember us sitting and watching Thundercats. Uh, we watched the first episode of Thundercats when it went out and we decided instantly we were going to play as Thundercats. Um, so it was, I think that was it. it was a, and then that to me is still why I love TV because much as I love going to the cinema, uh, TV is a communal thing and okay, a slight tangent that was a thing I learned I struggled with during lockdown was not having a communal thing because I needed it for my partner so we didn't have watching telly with people and we started doing so I started a movie club where we would watch a film together and to this day we still all press play at the same time I'm doing it tonight um, but also we have a little spin-off TV group so we do like the Mike Flanagan series and things like that um, at the moment, we're doing only murders in the building. So it's about five of us. And we, all we do is we sit and press play at the same time, have our faces on Zoom. And then when it's finished, 
we talk about it and i think it's just that that's what tv is tv is communal and family and and i love it for that well thanks for putting the theme tune for murder she wrote in my head i don't it's an earworm <laughs> well i go to a i can see the typewriter going across the screen well that's it me and my brother and sister were obsessed with arnold raced out of the door which is the the one sentence you can properly read in the opening sequence but yeah, once every every couple of months I go to, there's a thing called Solve Along Murder, She Wrote. And it's this guy called Tim. And he does it. He travels everywhere. So he's probably been to, he's definitely done it in Australia. Um, so he travels everywhere. And basically what he does is he shows an episode of Murder, She Wrote, um, but stops it. And we do he does things like analyzes. We, we discuss who's the most famous cast member. And he's got clips of them from any of the show they've done. Um we sing the theme tune. He's got words to the theme tune. And it's just a really glorious, glorious night out. So I very much recommend Solve Along Murder, she wrote. What are the words to the theme tune? Oh, it's creative. You have to sing it too, it's Joe. Murder, it's murder, she wrote. When a small town dame who has found fame. I can't remember. I can't remember. But, <laughs> but we wave at her when she waves on the bike and stuff. It's just very silly. But it's a really fun night out. But also quite interesting because... Um, he talks about how Murder, She Wrote was created. And I love um, how TV shows were created. And so, for example, Murder, She Wrote was created because it was a show called Enemy Queen. And in Enemy Queen, the most famous guest star was always the killer. And the audience caught on to that, so they stopped watching Enemy Queen. So Murder, She Wrote is created as a direct response to that. So the, the whole point of solving Murder, She Wrote is checking that they stick to the rule of it's not always the most famous person. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's just a really fun night out, but also really interesting. Yeah, I think often the Agatha Christie's Perot's that come out are usually the most famous person's the murderer too. It's it's hard not yes. to put that person in the role. Yeah. Um, so anyhow, back to uh, your writing. So you decided to send an unsolicited script to Big Finish back in the days when you could do that. Is that what happened? Did you already know Gary through fandom or? No, no, I didn't know anybody. No I've been to one one convention. 1993 i went to the 30th anniversary one in hammersmith in london me and my best mate from school the, the doctor who nerd um my mum took us to london and we went to that convention and i didn't really enjoy it it wasn't my kind of thing i love a convention now but it was my mate loved it he had a great time i kind of i enjoyed the talking i enjoyed the panels but i realized i, I just i don't have the mindset for say autographs i, I don't I don't understand. They don't appeal to me or getting photos taken of people. I love listening to people and, and meeting people. Um, so I didn't do it again. And then by then I was going to university and nobody at university knew really what Doctor Who was because um, by then it had been finished a few years. Um, so, yeah, no, it was I didn't know anybody. And I think there was me and Phil Pascoe who wrote Ish, which... I think came out before mine. I think that was the month before or the month after. Um, I think both of us were the same. We just didn't know anybody. Didn't I knew names? I knew anything like that. But I didn't know. Uh, had no contact. I'd never really met anybody. I don't think. Um, so the first time I met people was Big Finish at a Christmas party, um, and I was at university. And I was no, no, it's in Ireland, and I flew over. And I was terrified because I don't, you know, I'm not particularly confident, certainly not going into a room full of strangers. And I sort of walked in um, and 
could see Elizabeth Sladen in a corner. I could see Deck from Anton Deck talking to Claire Bookfield, who was in 2.4 Children, and then just loads of people I didn't know. And then I saw Gary Ross and I recognised him from sort of pictures in Doctor Who magazine and stuff. So I sort of went over and introduced myself. And he was like, oh, great, great to meet you. Da, 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 da. Brilliant. Yeah, and we must chat because I've got an idea. And his idea was he wanted to move the rapture to Ibiza. And he said, oh, we must chat, we must chat. And I was like, yeah, brilliant, great. And then he went off and carried on talking to whoever he was talking to. Because I think he really realised I didn't know anybody. So I literally, I think I got a drink and just stood there in the middle of the floor. And then Gary saw me and went, oh, you don't know anybody, do you? So he went and sat me on a table and went, this is Steve Lyons. This is a, and I was just like, oh. You wrote all the books. I love you all. I, mean, I can't remember who else there was. It was Steve Lyons. It was, but it was all sorts of people like that. And I was just sat on this table like, you wrote the books that I adored as teenager, as a teenager. Um, I was absolutely starstruck, especially by Steve Lyons, because I was like, you you wrote Head Games, which is amazing. Oh, my God. Um, so, yeah. So, that, yeah, I didn't know anybody um, at all. So is this, is this before your first plays come out? Yes. So we were... I've got a feeling I was commissioned. I've got the letter somewhere. I've got a feeling I was commissioned in August. Uh, I mean, Gary will know he's good with the facts. Um, I think I was commissioned in August 2001. That'd be right, because it came out in 2002. It came out in 2002, didn't it? And so that Christmas, I was starting to write it, and that Christmas party, which I think was early on in the month, it would have been because I was still, uh, yeah, I was still at home. I was, I was still in Dublin. I wasn't back at home. Um, uh, and Ga- that was when Gary said he had an idea. Why don't we set it in Ibiza? And I was like, that's really cool. That's really fun. Um, and then, yeah, uh, went back to Ireland, went home for Christmas, then went back and wrote it um, and sent it off. And I can't remember whether there were many notes or anything like that. Um, the original thing I sent in was a storyline, uh, not the script. So at this stage, you're, what, 22, 23 or so? Still pretty young. <laughs> I'm so bad at math. 87, 97, 98, 99, 2000. 24, probably. 23, 24, yeah. So you've not written anything else before, been commissioned for any other professional work. You've just sent in a storyline. You invited yeah. the big finish... Christmas party, and you're writing your first script. Hmm. That's pretty amazing. It really was. Um, although it was, there was the slightly odd thing was because I was working in car finance in Dublin. There was a couple of mates from university, and then I just saw these new mates, and it was brilliant. It was a really good vibe because it was all these young people who were sort of traveling the world. So it was Australians, South Africans, and everybody like that. And we just went out every night and got hammered, and <laughs> we went clubbing every night. It was a brilliant time. It would kill me now. Um, so nobody knew Doctor Who. Nobody really understood what I was doing. Um, so it was quite fun because it was this amazing, exciting thing. But I didn't really have people to talk to it about, um, other than my mate from school and things like that. Because I would tell you know people were just like, okay, great, you're writing something. I don't know what that means. <laughs> um, so really, but really exciting. And then, yeah, and then it got recorded, and I, I flew back to London for the recording, which was crazy. Um, you know, it's so exciting. So yeah, what was it like meeting Sylvester? Um, it was exciting, but at the same time, and I think it was a good thing. I went in, and basically at the Big Finish Christmas party with the writers was uh, a guy called Robert Dick, um, who sort of sort of to who conventions and stuff like that. Um, and we're you know we're still friends to this day. Um, he 
took me to the studio. So I stayed whenever after that, whenever I went. So that, that time, the big finish party, I stayed in a hotel, uh, which again, I'd never done by myself before. It was absolutely terrifying. Um, and every time after that, I stayed at Robert and Davy's flat. Um, and so Robert took me to the recording because he'd been to recordings before he knew people. Um, and obviously I had the slight issue was that Gary Russell wasn't going to be there, the person I'd been dealing with because it was directed by Jason. Um, who I don't think, well, maybe I'd met at the party, but I don't remember. Um, and so Robert took me in and there was Sylvester in the corridor. And, and I wasn't so much starstruck as just like, oh God, you know, um, hello. And Robert went, oh, Sylvester, this is Joe Lidster. He wrote the script that you're doing today. And Sylvester said, oh, I thought it was written by Mike Tucker because it mentions the Krill. And I know he writes the Krill. And you know, he's like, this is the most exciting thing going on in my life. And the actor doesn't even know who's written it, you know. But actually, really then good because you go, oh, yeah, it is a job. It's a job. It's This isn't a, a thing I'm doing for fun. This isn't something I'm doing as a fan. This is an actual job. And for the actors, it's two days of recording. And they might have read the scripts. In some cases, they won't have even read the script because some of them like to sight read and don't like, you know, don't want to do too much um, preparation. They're instinctive. Um, and, and then Sylvester was lovely, you know, he's really, really, really nice bloke. And I, you know, obviously met him quite a few times and get on brilliantly. Sophie was lovely and everything like that. But I think that initial thing of it helped absolutely lower my expectations that this wasn't the Joseph Lidster two days. This was a lot of actors doing some work and you're here to watch it. And I've got now, and it, I think it just gave me that instant that I now have, I have absolute respect for actors. So whenever I'm doing theatre, whenever I'm doing an audio drama or anything like that, I say to the, if I'm doing theatre, the short plays I do, I always say to the director, if you want me at the rehearsals, I'll come to rehearsals. If you want to not see me now until the first opening night, I will do that because I respect you and the actors. I My job is done. I've handed it over. So I think that was actually, it was really good. It was a nice little, oh yeah, this is, calm down. This is a job. And it meant that the two days were just nice. They weren't, I wasn't hyper. Um so, yeah, it was really good and just really fun. And then we had a great bit where and Gary did come in on the second day because we all recorded extras for The Plague Herd of Excellus. I remember shouting death to her or something like that. Um, and two of the actors in The Rapture recorded a scene as bank robbers for the Sarah Jane Smith series. And I just remember that it was so exciting that being involved in all this creativity and that somebody had come in and gone, right, I need to know how to do this. And it was just, and it gave me such a buzz for it. I absolutely loved it. Um, so yeah, no, it was a really, really great experience. Doctor Who, the rapture. Winds of the darkness. Winds of night. Are you really an angel? Ibiza is a very mystical land. It is not the first time that angels have visited these islands. You called me Ace. I don't call myself that anymore. Who are you? What do you want? I fear the world has gone mad. The children who come here are out of control. I can see things. Monsters and demons. Hello. I'm the Sandman. He's coming for me! I'm going to eat your soul. No! No, stop this! I, Gabriel, angel of music, I'm going to give you eternal salvation. 
spread the truth and love of the Lord and play those kicking tunes. This club is totally amazing. Dance, McShane. Dance. Yeah! That girl with Brian, it's her. You've got a picture of me. The rapture cannot be interrupted. I was God. I know who I am. Dorothy, your whole life's been a lie. Angels are never what they seem. How was your Friday night? Mine was completely and utterly mad. Now, it's a pretty um, interesting script in lots of ways. It's you know, Sinai Ibiza. It deals with One a way. lot of angst with Ace. Uh, yeah. And mu- music actually plays a really huge part in the storyline. What was the reaction to it when it came out? <laughs> it was hated. Um, no, it was it was an interesting thing. I mean, for a start, it's a first-time writer, also a first-time director. Um, you know, I I mean, for me, the big problem is it completely falls apart at the end. It's a terrible ending. It taught me you need to, you can write. So I think, I haven't heard it in years, but my memory of it is that I actually think episode one is a pretty decent first episode of Doctor Who. It sets everything up nicely. It's well-structured, everything like that. Uh, I think episode two is actually really good. It's really exciting and fun and, and, and totally different to anything Big Finish had done because um, I wasn't coming at it from a sort of, you know, I was, like you say, I was slightly younger than other people, so I wasn't coming at it from a 1970s Doctor Who fan point of view. I was coming at it from the new adventures and I was coming at it from all the TV and films and media and uh, I love to absorb. So I was doing something very different. And then episode three starts to trail off and then episode four is a total mess because it just kind of repeats the end of episode one. So it very much taught me, make sure your endings are strong because you can write a brilliant opening, but people will remember the endings. Um, so, yeah, it, the trailer came out and everybody was very excited because it's a really good trailer. Jim Mortimer did a brilliant trailer. Um, and then it comes out and it, again, it was actually... In the grand scheme of things, I'm glad it wasn't liked very much because, again, it just taught me that this is professional, the professional world. Because I was on what was Outpost Gallifrey, and no, don't it, do it, don't do it. Well, this is it. So what I was doing was because obviously Doctor Two was a small thing back in those days. I was on Outpost Gallifrey. I joined it because I was like, I'd been announced in Doctor Who magazine. And I think that's when I joined Outpost Gallifrey. I found it and was like, oh, wow, look, people are talking about me. This is so exciting. Um, and the first person, I remember the first person who listened to The Rapture really liked it. And I replied immediately going, oh, thank you. I'm so glad you liked it. Da-da-da-da. The second person hated it. And I was like, oh, what do I say to that? And then I went, you don't say anything. It's That's not how this should work. And so I stepped away and people were really, really visceral about it. You know, it was very upsetting, really genuinely, because it had been the happiest thing that had happened in my life. This was the dream. I was writing and I was writing Doctor Who and I was writing about clubbing and dance music and the music in it is so brilliant. Um, It was all these, and it was about depression, which is a big part of my life. It was all these things that were so important to me. And, and people online 
can be personal. People weren't, it wasn't always about the script. It was personal at times. And that's very hard to deal with when you're young, especially. Um, and it, but, and also, you know, you, cause you'd start getting heads up about things. Cause you'd start getting like the ace angst stuff. That wasn't my idea. That was Gary. Gary, uh, Sophie had said, David John could play my brother. Gary had said, let's give Ace a brother. And I'd gone, but she didn't have a brother. I'd read all the new adventures. And so it had to be a long lost brother. And then I went, well, actually, I can make it so it ends all of Ace's angst. So she's been, because she's quite angsty in cold hits. So I can follow directly on from cold hits. And go, but no, people, all people remembered was the angst. Not, well, actually, Ace is now perfectly happy and sorted and travelling on her own, you know, steam, not running away. Um, but I think then it was very good because I realised then I don't, you, it's not, you don't engage with it. I don't personally think you should engage with it. I'll, I'll, Twitter's different because Twitter people will act you and say, I've like really liked this story. They tend not to at you if they don't like it. Um, so you don't have to search for it, but they act you if you like it, at which point I think it's polite to reply and go, yes, thank you very much. And it, it is lovely. You know, you, everybody likes a bit of praise. Um, so I very much, didn't engage and then I did see there was there was another story that year I think it was that year where I did see the writer engage and what happens is especially in those days when it was such a smaller pond you're a big fish in a small pond you know I mean I was instantly signing autographs which was crazy um you're a very big fish in a small pond and if people if you reply to people people are nice because they want to get the reply so you'd see that on the forum and I'd be like the story's fine you know i was like well it, what, i don't think it deserved the praise it was getting and i realized it's getting the praise because you're engaging with the people giving feedback and that's not how it should work because if i watch an episode of murder she wrote i don't write to angela lansbury and go didn't like this episode do better or well done that was a great episode and then expect a response back from her going thanks joe i'll bear that in mind for the next episode you know it's like that's not how you absorb that's not how it should work and I think that was really helpful for me to to get into my head, to step away from actively engaging with it at all. Because, um, you know, you'd get people doing it in person as well. I remember signing autographs for my second story and two people looking at me with disgust and very deliberately walking around me because they'd hated the first one. I remember somebody, I was chatting to Rob Shearman um, outside of signing. and We must have just been waiting to meet people and go for a drink. And me and Rob were sort of taking the mick out of each other. And I think I was mocking him for being old. I mean, he was about 12 at the time, but I was like doing something. And um, he said, well, at least I didn't write the rapture. And I went, oh, and this guy next to us went, did one of you have something to do with the rapture? Then um, he just went, don't get me started on the rapture. And I was like, no one asked you to. <laughs> you know? I was like, please leave. Um, so, yeah, it was very tricky. And there are people who absolutely love it. No, you know, it has got its fans. Um, I'm very proud of it. I think as a first piece of work, I think the fact that it's experimental, the fact that actually what it did was make me realise I really like writing about characters, and that's what instantly got me employed by Big Finish, not just for the next or two story I did, but also for the Tomorrow People and Sapphire and Steel, because mm. I think people, producers at Big Finish saw that I was invested in characters, so I was coming at it from a slightly different angle to other writers who might be more invested in 
the show, whatever show it was, Doctor Who, Suffer Still, Tomorrow People, whereas I was a bit more committed from a point of view of I want to write this kind of thing and put that in the world of these shows. I actually do enjoy it. I think it's is being inventive and the big finish at the time would try a lot of unusual stuff. I think mm. some stuff really hits off and some things doesn't. I think it's a first piece of work, it's amazing. Um oh, thank you. I, but that's being said, you then go on to write your second piece of work, which is the most astounding piece of work for a second <laughs> piece, which which is master. So yeah. I mean the, the well, was that your the, second piece? Was oh, or was it uh, Sapphire and Steel? No, I think Master was second, but I think by that point, basically Jason put me in touch with Nigel Fairs, who I think was taking over the Tomorrow People audios. And I had an idea for Tomorrow People, which was what would it be like to be a normal family and these crazy Tomorrow People come into your life? And that be then changed to become my first Sapphire in Steel. Um, I think, I can't remember the sequence, I'm terrible. I can't remember yesterday, let alone 20 years ago. But whatever the sequence was, I think I was maybe talking to Nigel at that point. And then Gary um, got in touch about doing Master. Okay, so I don't talk about Master because it, it is a masterpiece yeah. in terms of... It, it is could be easily produced on stage. It would be wonderful to see actually mm, on a stage. Yeah. It, it, I mean, in every way, it's, it does show where you were heading as a playwright. Um, how did Master come about? How did you get the ideas for it? How could you write so well for so many different characters? And <laughs> it, it, yeah, and, and did you actually know who was going to be playing the characters because the, the cast was spectac spectacular? Um, did you have any idea who they'd be, or it just it came together by the director? No, I had no idea. I knew obviously Jeffrey and Sylvester would be in it. Um, I've got a different memory to what Gary said in his interview. So he says, I was always around the office. I think I was still in Dublin at the time, um, that I would go and visit them. But I think he came to me to ask me to do it. But then I think I then went back instantly with ideas. Um, so, because I remember being given, I think, the note that it had to be on an alien planet. I don't, I love Doctor Who, but I just no interest in writing some alien planet. I was like, oh, God, you know, it's instantly in my head. Again, maybe because the new series hadn't happened at that point. But instantly in my head, alien planet goes to, well, there's a rebel leader and there's and then the thing's foil. There's foil everywhere and, and everything like that. And I just, I don't think that would be my kind of thing. So I'm like, well, actually, I could do an alien planet that's old fashioned. And that's really fun because it means what I'm basically doing is a historical story, but I don't have to do any research because I can just make it up. Um, and then I thought I'll do the Earth Empire because I loved all that, the new adventures and the adjudicators and stuff. Um, and yeah, I think it came about from is just that the master doesn't really have a character. The master does, you know, so Omega and Davros have backstories and, and, and goals and aims and everything like that. The master's aim is different in every story. He wants to destroy the universe. He wants to own the universe. He wants to run Earth. He wants to destroy Earth to piss off the Doctor. You know, it's like he's he's not particularly a coherent character, which is fine because he's not meant to be a coherent character. He's meant to be the Doctor's Moriarty, who sometimes is out to get the Doctor, but sometimes is the Doctor's finding him. Um, and I thought actually one thing, that had never really been tackled <laughs> so funny. It comes from such an odd little thing. But in terms of the Autons, the Master brutally kills loads of people. But including, like, the guy pushes off the gantry. He could just let go past, but pushes him off a gantry. Um, but it's the, the guy with that the he miniaturises and puts in the egg next to the egg in the lunchbox or whatever. And I just remember that game, that guy's talked about his wife making... That, that 
wife is doesn't know her husband's now dead and somebody's gonna have to go and tell her husband and then you have it with the farrell family you know where the father and son are wiped out um you know i just it was something about that that just because i got that was it i'd gone back to watch her of the autumns going well that's the master's first story what you know what's what can i get from it and i just thought there's something really interesting about this guy who kills and doesn't have any qualms about it it's it's not killing for he, he, he just kills he would as easily kill you as let you go it just he would make it seems to make no difference to him he doesn't it's not like he even takes great pleasure in killing um and i thought that's really cold that's really interesting and what i read was again i've got it somewhere i still kept it um i read a biography of jeffrey dharma and I found that really interesting because it's all about nature versus uh, nurture. But with Jeffrey Dahmer, the first person he kills, and it is, I think, like in Master, it's, it's a rock, I think, it's a jogger, or he nearly kills. It's not that it's an accident, but it's not that he set out to do it. But once you've done your first kill, you start to go, well, if that's the best way for me to get forward in life, or if that's how I get what I want, and in Jeffrey Dahmer's case, you get, you know, it's, it's sexual arousal. But if that's what gets me what I want, then that's what I have to do. I've, I've done it once and nobody's arrested me. Nobody's locked me up. I've not gone crazy. You know, I'm perfectly sane. I'm normal. It just makes sense to me to do that. And I thought that would be an interesting thing to do with the master. Um, and then, yeah, no, I came up with the idea of, I don't know, just... I don't know. I can never remember where ideas came from. I think it was that was the initial thing. And then... I knew I wanted to do, I, I knew I wanted to do something like Amadeus. It was very much like, I want to do something Amadeus. I want to do something where it's not fair that the main guy, in this case, the master, can't live the life he wants to live. It's not fair. So then I was like, well, what if he did? And I knew I wanted, um, originally I had like a nightmare sequence of ballrooms and gothic masks and Venetian style thing, um, which thankfully I think Gary went, no. Um, and yeah, so I kind of knew that I wanted to do that. And and then it kind of, I think, just came out from there. Where it was like, well, there needs to be murders. Um, if there's going to be murders, it can't be the master. So it's got to be one of the other characters. Um, and again, I, I, and I thought, I do also, I just want to do something very different to the Rapture. I want to do something that's very small scale. Um, it's basically four people in a house talking. Um and I knew I wanted to do something scary because Doctor Who scared me as a kid. You know, the vervoid terrified the hell out of me. Um, I wanted to scare me. And so it's got the uh, whispering voices, which is totally just nicked the TV um, show Ghostwatch, which plays with your expectations because, again, you couldn't rewind to telly back in those days. So they'd play a clip and you'd see a ghost. And then they'd replay the clip and the ghost wouldn't be there. And they'd be like, no, there's nothing there. And you'd be watching at home going, oh my God, there was. And so with Master, there's a whispering voice, you know, because I wanted people listening to it going, no characters have mentioned the fact that this guy's whispering. Um, so I wanted to play with that. Um, and then I, it just all came, it was just that thing. Of, and also I like playing with the form. So I then went, what is the arrival of the Doctor? Um, I just thought that'd be quite fun. Uh, so yeah, and then... And I was so lucky with the cast because I didn't, I knew who Philip Maddock was um, and he was such a nice man. He was so lovely and welcoming and supportive. Um, 
I mean, they're both gone now, sadly, but they were both much older and Jeffrey and Sylvester were sort of near enough their age. And then there was Charlie Hayes, who was playing Jade the maid. Um, um, and she was so, I think it was like maybe her first acting job. She'd highlighted all of her lines in the script and the older actors were slightly mocking her. They were like, oh, we don't bother with that. We just, just, just stand in front of the mic and say the words, love. You know, and they were, obviously they were joking. They put a load of work into it. And it was, I mean, it's so astonishing. I thought Anne Riddler is a beautiful performance, um, and yeah, so it was quite, it was quite fun for that sort of the, the difference in ages. And it just means that I do think the, I think it's the episode three cliffhanger where Jade reveals who she really is. It's so beautiful because I think I've written it quite well, but I think the old people all panicking and then this quiet, innocent little girl voice and then David Darlington's sound design at that particular moment. It's just brilliant. Um, so, yeah, very happy with it. Again, not heard it in years, but um, I remember being happy with it. And I do remember, like Gary said, I do remember it. It's very long. <laughs> having, but having just done, you just mentioned that with the rapture, the, the plotting was slightly out. The plotting is absolutely perfect in Master. Is it just luck? I mean, how did you manage to go from somewhere where you, you know, first first piece of first play, few issues, of, you know, few issues with the plotting, and then you create something which really is astounding? Hmm. What happened between the two of them? Um, I, it was the ending. I knew that I needed to have a strong ending, um, and I thought. I, you know, I'd got the rough idea thing, and then I went, what it? And then I knew I wanted a framing device with the doctor talking to someone. Um, and I thought, what if the twist at the end was that the doctor did the first kill, not the master? Um, and I thought, that's a strong ending. And so it's about working up to that. So then you go, why has the master got 10 years of freedom? Oh, because the doctor's doing it to atone for the murder that will reveal at the end of the story. So I think it was just... It was realizing that you have to think about this thing as a non-linear. As a writer, you have to go, what is the ending? Where what, what's the end point of this story? And since then I've done a lot of studying of it. And it's about basically characters' wants and needs. So a character wants something, but that's not necessarily what they need. Um so it was, yeah, basically just knowing a bit more about structure. I mean, it's still and part of the thing with Doctor Who is the four episode thing is such an odd structure because it's not, you can't fit the three act structure into it. You can't, um, you, you, I love doing a one 10 minute thing or a one hour thing uh, because then you just, yep, got it. The four episode thing is slightly odd. So actually with Master, I, you know, episode one sets up the story and then episode two parks the story and just as two people chatting in a dining room and then episode three picks the story up again so <laughs> it, it's slightly cheating it's 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 not i wouldn't say it's necessarily the best plotted thing because it does cheat slightly by having this in the middle of it but it's thematically part of the same story so it works i think um but yeah for me the big thing was realizing that i needed to have a strong ending and then you work towards that strong ending you work out you know you slightly work backwards um and now i think i do that subconsciously it's when when you know if i do a talk at university and they talk about the writing structure or whatever i go I, I don't know i don't sit there uh plotting out the writing structure but i go back and look at something i've written and go oh there's the turning point oh they were into act two. Oh, that's the characters want realizing that what they need you know so i kind of do it subconsciously now but i think certainly for master it was a very conscious thing to go how do i get to a really powerful ending work backwards and think about the cliffhangers um, with Rapture, I think episode one and two had great cliffhangers, but I hadn't really thought about them. I can't remember what episode three is. Um, 
with Master I knew I'm terrifying the audience. I want to terrify you. So the episode three cliffhanger has to be an absolute game changer. And that's the reveal of who Jade is. Um, episode, you know, and once you start thinking about it more in blocks or acts or episodes, I think that's why it became, that's why it feels like it's a better plot. Doctor Who, Master. My dearest friends, I write this letter in the hope that you will do me the greatest of favours. On the 23rd of this month, I would be honoured if you would join me here in my home for dinner. It is ten years since my arrival in this town, an anniversary I feel I cannot possibly ignore. You've both treated me with such kindness and friendship. For the most part, the last ten years have been more than I could ever have hoped for. Of course, recently, Perfugium has become a darker place. But for one night, at least, let's forget about the darkness and spend a pleasant evening enjoying good food, fine wine, music, perhaps even some parlour games. Please help me to make my birthday, if you can call it that, a night to remember. A night to remember. So, Jacqueline, Victor, I look forward to a pleasant and relaxing evening in your company. Yours, Dr. John Smith. If, if we can just go to who Jade is, because if you've heard our episode, you've probably heard me talking about being a little bit confused about personifying death, because to me, death is a state rather than a thing. So hmm. as the writer, can you, can you tell me what I'm missing and where that idea came from? Uh, from the New Adventures, so Jay, death is uh, a character in the New Adventures. I think death gotcha. is an eternal. So I was never into the book, so that's, that's yeah. good to know. No, so death is an eternal. But for the audio, where it came from was I knew I needed someone more powerful than the Doctor and the Master, and I knew it's a bit like I did a Sarah Jane Adventures called The Nightmare Man. I want, I like supernatural, and I really like to go as supernatural as you can in a science fiction world. Death feels like a supernatural character. Now, if you go to Tardis Wicket, you'll find that she's an Eternal and she was a fa fa probably Faction Paradox was involved somewhere. Um, <laughs> but for the concept of the master story, that those four episodes, Jade is death. That's what de and death is, you know, feeds on death or whatever death does. Um, it's like with the Nightmare Man in the Sarah Jane adventure I did. I had to literally give him an alien name because I was told he needs an alien name because it's science fiction. And so it's thrown away at one point. Somebody goes, oh, he's a bling, blong, blong. You know, it's literally, I typed random letters on the keyboard to give him a name because he's the Nightmare Man and he's spooky and terrifying. That's all he should be. Um, I do understand absolutely why you do it. So that to me was what death was. I was like, actually, I've got a great get out in that death exists as a character in the universe of Doctor Who. Um, but for my story, you don't need to know what that you know that she's an eternal <laughs> and there's other eternals and doctor who dances with her in time we're in revelation you don't need to know all that backstory i think for this story fair enough very good so over the next couple of years you are now writing heaps so audio dramas with doctor who ones you're writing tomorrow people you're writing sapphire and steel you're writing short novels at what point do you give up your day job do you give up your day job um, um 
how's it working? And then also, what are the what are the pieces of work out of that time that you are really proud of? I remember loving doing the short stories because, again, I could be, um, bam, here's, here's a short story that's going to make you laugh and cry. Here's, here's a thing. I don't need to worry too much about a cliffhanger later on and so on. Um, and they could be character led. You know, short stories really allow you to do a full character thing. So I, a lot of my short stories are one person's journey um, and Doctor Who and the Companion are peripheral characters. Um, so I enjoyed doing that. And then I enjoyed, I really, really enjoyed um, Sapphire and Steel and the Tomorrow People because I love working with Nigel Fares. We've just been on a writer's treat together that he organises. Um, we are we are synced absolutely as writer and producer or writers really. Um, he loves character led stuff, so that's what he was doing with Sapphire and Steel and Tomorrow People. Um, so I really enjoyed that and becoming friends with Nigel. That was such a nice thing. Um, and yeah, so then I eventually I moved back from Dublin because I was coming over from there to London for a lot of the recordings and it was using up on my holiday time. And I remember one day actually pulling a sickie um, and flying to, flying to London first thing in the morning of the day of a recording and, and phoning my manager's answer machine on the way going, I'm so sorry, I'm feeling sick um, or whatever it was. Oh, I, I have to fly home. Um, and so it just made, and also I just loved London. I fell in love with London and I had lots of friends there now. So I decided to move to London and probably a good job I did because then I would, could hang around the big finish office a bit more. I became more socially um, uh, friendly with Gary Russell and Ian Farrington, who was like the sort of big finish dog's body, really, but also did all the swap trips and that. But it meant we we lived near each other and eventually we lived together, you know, it was like, and we'd go out drinking all the time because he was a bit younger like me. Um, and so that was really fun. And then basically I was in... Uh, the the Fitzroy Tavern, which is a pub that Doctor Who fans go to, and they used to go a lot more, I think, than they do necessarily now. Um, and uh, I was there, and James Goss was there, who does lots of Doctor Who stuff. Um, I'm sure you know where who he is, and he came over to me and he'd listened to I'd written a sorry, there was we did a series called Unit, which was like a sort of 2000s 24 Spooks version of Unit. And he'd listened to my story um, and really enjoyed it. And he came over and he said, I just really enjoyed your story. And at that point, he he was in charge of the Doctor Who website. And Doctor Who was back, 2005. Um, and I drunkenly said, well, give me a job on your website, said. And he went, that's why I'm talking to you. I went, oh, right. <laughs> um, I should put down my drink and try and sober up slightly. And... Um, Yes, so he then employed me to write from the Christmas Invasion onwards. So I would write the website for the British Rocket Group or whatever it was, um, biographies of the characters and everything like that. So there was a website to go to and then there'd be a game on it. And then I was going to write all, and then do all the series two websites. And that was when I was able to, so I'd been in London a year and I was working in social housing. And that was when I went, actually, I can now afford... I, I live very I can live very easily in my means. Um, I, I can afford to go full-time freelance, do big finish, do this. And then Gary Russell employed me to um, 
a bridge, some I bridged a couple of Doctor Who novels and then the first three Torchwoods. And that meant I got to go on the Torchwood set before Torchwood came out because Gary wanted the person who's and that was a really that's possibly the hardest job I've ever done because the Torchwood novels are really long and I had to cut them down to a third of their original length. Which you're just like, that's not taking out a few words, that's taking out entire story. But you also I'm not allowed to change words, obviously. So you know, it's got to be the writer's word. So I'm having to find ways to and I remember doing things like uh, he walked and I'd cut 40 pages into a room because I'd find the next page you could go to. So that was really hard. But that, yeah, that was good. Um, and yeah, through all of that, I got known in Cardiff. Um, again, quite young. I was sort of socialising with the younger people, the Doctor Who Confidential crew and people like that. And that eventually led to um, part of the journey of the way to doing Torchwood. So how, how did Torchwood come about? Is it, was it, is it your first... TV script, yeah. So and, and it's a pretty major episode for goodness' sake. Yeah, I know. So I, again, you just you know, there's so much luck involved. Um, but yeah, basically, um, I was known in the Cardiff circle. Everybody cliche, but everybody was a big family. There was the Torchwood group. There was Tor- Torchwood. There wasn't Sarah Jane Adventures at that point. There was Torchwood Doctor Who and Doctor Who Confidential. Um, and yeah, I'd hang out a lot with the confidential people as pals with the producer, um, and the younger people on it. And we'd go out, me and James Goss would go out, we'd go clubbing and everything. And I had a great time. Um, so I was known in Cardiff, but also Russell signs off everything. So I was writing these, I don't think he necessarily was too concerned about the website stuff. So I was writing all these fictional websites, but I think what he was concerned about, what he would always keep an eye on is I was writing a little video every week that Mickey Smith would um, tell you to go to this website and play a game. So um, I was writing these videos for Noel Clark to perform. And so they had to be script edited by Russell or they'd go through Russell. Um, So I think he knew who I was. And at the same time, Gary had then left Big Finish and was working... um, on Torchwood, I think, well, I suppose, he, yeah, he'd been working on, you know, writers, um, you know, getting writers for the books and things like that. Um, and Russell said to Gary, look, for series two of Torchwood, I'd like to give a new writer the opportunity to see what it's like to write a TV um, script. And it was an overcommission, so they would commission 15 scripts for a 13-episode series. And Gary very nicely suggested me. Um, I think part of it was he knew I was absolutely a huge Torchwood fan, um, but also that he, I think, knew that, you know, I just loved writing. I adore writing, um, and that I, I would appreciate the opportunity. Um, and so I met Russell and Julie, um, gave them... Uh, my thoughts on Tortured Series 1, uh, what I liked and what I didn't like. So I was able to be honest about it. I'm pretty certain I wore a suit because I was like, I'm going, bearing in mind, they must have seen me floating around looking like the mess that I always look like anyway. I'm pretty certain I wore a suit for it. Um, and yeah, and then I was writing this over commission and at that point it was Yanto who was dying, not Owen. And I was writing this sort of Yanto. Um, it was about a near, uh, near-death experience support group type thing. And um, then eventually it became Owen. And yeah, I think they must have just been toying with whether it was going to be, because it's a three episode arc, and they must have been toying whether it was going to be a two episode arc or a three episode arc, because you could have finished it after the second episode. Um, 
and I was at a party at Gary Russell's and we watched 42, um, which had been delayed by a week because uh, of Eurovision. And we watched 42 and I was chatting to Gillen, who was a producer of Confidential. And she said something about how she'd be interviewing me at some point. And I was like, mm, okay. And then Helen Rayner said something about, some, I don't know what she said, but I was just getting this vibe. I was like, why are they talking about it? Like my, my episode's going to happen. It's not, it's an overcommission. You know, the idea is if another episode falls through, mine will replace it, but it's, you know, that, that's, it's not going to happen. Um, and I sort of went up to Gary and said, a bit, people seem to be implying that. And he went, well, I didn't want to freak you out, but yeah, your, your, your episode's being made, at which point I freaked out. Um, so yeah, it was it was amazing, you know, and just astonishing opportunity. Um and you know, and then but then I was like, you know, obviously couldn't tell anyone um until it was officially announced. Uh but I did that year I went home for Christmas and I did. I went to the pub with my sister and my mate from school, the Doctor Who nerd, um, who and we went to the pub, the three of us, and I told them, I, went, I can't tell you this, but I've got to tell you something. And Chris, because he's so into Doctor Who, replied, oh, does that mean you might get to do a Doctor Who? And I was like, do you not understand I'm writing television? Nobody from our town writes television. And I'm writing for Torchwood, which is amazing. It's like, I'm not thinking about the next thing. I'm thinking about this thing. Um, so that was funny. But yeah, no, it was just, um, yeah. And then just an amazing, amazing experience. Terrifying, really terrifying. But, um, so Russell, Russell Russell's very hands-on with the whole Torchwood? Yes, yeah. He became less hands-on when he moved to America, um, which was end of Sarah Jane. No, yeah. He wasn't hands-on particularly for, I don't think, for, like, he'd always notes, so the notes would come in, but obviously he wouldn't be in the meetings. Obviously in those days we didn't really have Zoom. I think Skype existed, but you didn't really use it. Um, so it was, I thought yeah. Chris Chibnall was the showrunner, but he was it more Yeah, Russell? Chris was also, it was basically... Chris Russell, Gary. Is there another script editor? I'm going to feel awful if I've got Brian Minchin. Was Brian Minchin script editor? I know I dealt with him a lot. Um, maybe I'll dealt with him as a producer later. Um, but yeah, they, they were very hands-on. I think Russell was particularly hands-on with me because I was absolutely new to television. I think everybody else had written. There was nobody else. I think Noel Clark wrote one, but he. I think he'd done his film by that point. So I think he was established as a writer in a way that I wasn't. Um, so yeah, he was hands-on um, in dealing, you know, certainly on my episode. So what did that do for you in terms of career? I mean, it gave me my career. It's I owe everything to it um, because Russell then instantly employed me on the Sarah Jane Adventures series two. Um and said, but because I'm employing on this and you need to have an agent, I've spoken to my agent and they're, they're, they're going to meet you and they, but you know, as long as you do well, they're going to take you on. And from then on, I've solidly worked in kids TV since from the Sarah Jane Adventures onwards. Um, Tortured is, remains my one adult TV credit, but um, yeah, I've done lots of kids TV since every year. Um, you know, it's just about afford to live. Um, but yeah, I've done been very lucky to have worked on a lot of different shows, um, very, very diverse shows, um, which has been an amazing experience. Uh, so yeah, no, I owe everything uh, to it because yeah, just wouldn't have done it. And also 
the other thing as well is I'm not hugely necessarily ambitious. So I'm not thinking about where I'm going next. So occasionally my agent will go, you need to write an adult spec script so that we can start putting you forward for adult TV because I'm very old now, you know, and it's like, she'll do that. And I'll be like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll get around to it. But I'm just doing this at the moment, this paid work. I'm, I'm writing this terrible unpaid audio thing for a friend, but I said, I'll do it, you know, because um, I'm not very professional that way. Um, but yeah, he also, what I did have was I had the experience of, Russell T Davis um you know I mean everybody is brilliant but Russell is a genius um and the things you learn from him are so helpful um yeah I mean so I've got taken that through everything that I've done comes from what I learned from Russell on torture and the Sarah Jane adventures in particular um just learned so much from him I, I just want to jump back and, and mention that when I heard Master, I thought, yes, that was a fantastic story. But as a whole, it was it was really grabbing me. So I wasn't really focused on you as the writer so much for that one. It was the performance of Sylvester, performance of yeah. Philip Maddock and Jeffrey Beavers. The story that really got me when it came to you and your name was probably because I wasn't familiar with the show so much, but it was your Sapphire and Steel Daisy Chain. And that really, that really grabbed me more than anything. And I always looked out for your name after that. Oh, but after, after speaking with you again, I, I can really see where you're coming from with your love of soap because yeah. Daisy, Daisy Chain has a very soap feel about it. And I guess it's where eventually in Big Finish, you, you started looking after Dark Shadows where you're combining mm -hmm. soap with Supernatural. Yeah. Um, so how did you end up with, uh, with that gig? Yeah, so yeah, no, so Daisy Chain was that. And again, that was me. Uh I I hadn't seen any Saffron Steel, so I got the video and watched the series, fell in love with it. I adore Saffron Steel. Um and I knew what I wanted to do was do a modern version of it. I didn't want to do and brilliantly, I think what they did so brilliantly was the first story of Steve Lyons, the passenger, which is ultra traditional sapphire and steel it's kids saying nursery rhymes it's a train it's brilliant it's really atmospheric it's gorgeous um and i think then you get my story which is not nursery rhymes it's tv adverts it's it's stuff like that i love i've always i have a slightly weird obsession with news readers and adverts i think because they play such an important part of our lives without us realizing it the amount of things i write that i've bunged a newsreader in or or whatever just because also I find newsreaders inherently funny because they're always very serious. And obviously, they're reporting serious stuff, but there's, they still have to be a little bit melodramatic when they talk. Um, so I think that was able to do that in Daisy Chain. But yeah, that soapy thing was um, just a thing I loved. And with Dark Shadows, um, I was flatmates with Stuart Manning, and he, I, I would listen to the audios he was doing. I didn't know the show at all. I tried to watch episode one with him, didn't get on with it. Um, and then one night we came home from the pub and I just said to him, no, he's, there must be an episode of Dark Shadows that will make me want to watch it. And Dark Shadows, if you don't know, has different, it, it, it's the most bonkers show ever made. But at one point they go back in time to 1897. So it investigates, I think it's investigate the ghost of Quentin who's appeared in the modern day. Um, but basically what they do is they then go, right, all the actors are now playing different characters. And yes, we need to try and work out why Quentin died, but here are a whole bunch of new storylines and characters. And it's so camp and colourful and glorious and funny and scary. And it's brilliant. I fell in love with it then. So eventually then I wrote uh, an audio for Stuart. And then there were two strands, a bit like the Doctor Who ones at the time. There was the 
full cast audios, which are of so much hard work, um, and the easier to produce and can, can tell really fascinating, good stories with the two handers. And so I wrote a two-hander, but I wrote the first two-hander that had a character who wasn't from a TV series in it. So I wrote one with Louise Jameson in it, um, playing a ca related character, but it meant it opened it up slightly. And then Stuart said he was not wanting to do the two-handers anymore. He wanted to focus fully on the full cast. It, it, it's a tough job producing two separate ranges of the same series. Um uh, and I think I just said, oh, and I think what I did was I spoke to James Goss and told him that Stuart was doing this. And he said, well, why don't we produce it? Because I was like, I don't know. I'm useless with money. I'm useless with anything technical or anything like that. I said, I'd love to continue the story of Dark Shadows, but that was it. So then, but James, I think, had that experience. Well, obviously, he worked at the BBC. So James was, you know, knew how to phone an agent and say, we'd like this actor. Um, so we worked really well together. Stuart let us take over and we worked really well together. But what we started to do was introduce more soapy stuff because Stuart was doing quite standalone stories. Whereas obviously Dark Shadows is a soap opera. But also, obviously, because Dark Shadows is a soap opera, it's hard to do a missing adventure from it because we know what the characters went on. And then eventually James decided to step down and Stuart decided to step down and me and David Darlington took over and we did the series Bloodlust, which was very, well, we did a run of audios that we set all after each other because we realised, well, if we're paying Catherine Lee Scott for that audio, can she record lines for these audios? Which um, I think then we were told, no, we can't, but we'd done a year of it. So it was <laughs> done by then. It was, sorry. Um, the actors loved it. Um, but it meant that we got a run of six separate stories, but with strands going throughout that led to a very ghost watch or master style end story called beyond the grave. And then we did a series because then what we asked, what we wanted to do was do a continuation. And we absolutely went into it as this is a soap opera now. Um, so we did a soap, we did basically Twin Peaks, we did a soap opera murder mystery, but with me looking at going, where do the characters need to go? Where are they from? As a serial thing, not just well, what's their role in this in the show. So yeah, yeah, just very proud of it. Why are you looking at me like that? I was just wondering how old you are. What? Your eyes. It's as if they've caught the moonlight far too many times. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Empire. My name's Madam Rosie Fay, and I'm here to bring pleasure to your ears. Ain't no one gonna say I bring pleasure to your eyes as well? You ready for a song? Yeah. Right. I know all about you, Rosie Fay. I recognise a creature of the night when I see one. I ain't no creature. I'm talking about your gentleman friend. He ain't no creature. He's an American. It's a tale of horror and intrigue. Oh, my favourite. <gasps> What's happening? I feel funny. I'm all hot. Feel the wrath of my burning heart. <laughs> What are you doing? Looking at the stars, the moon. Down here it's all fog and bricks and misery, but up there... Don't you ever wonder what else there is? I used to wonder what was on the other side. But then, I stopped wondering. Oh, no. 
move. You'll come in with me. I can't not move and come with you. Make your mind up. You can call me Amelia. Now, Miss Faye, I'd like to know why you're murdering my ladies. Look at her! Oh, dear Lord, look at her! She's on fire! Sometimes. I wonder how much of our lives are ruled by fate. Is there some greater being bringing us all together? The Collinses, the Fays, the Ricosis. You mean me? <laughs> Madam Rosie Fay. Uh, you put on quite a show, my dear. My name is Jade. And I'm dead. And I'm alive. Dark Shadows. London's Burning. Available on CD and download from www.bigfinish.com. So I've listened to the Louise Jemison episode, which was wonderful because I just assume everything Lou does. But if someone wants to jump onto Dark Shadows, where would you say is the best place to jump on? There's a story we did called Beneath the Veil, and it involves two young people arriving in Collinsport and very, very in a Let's write a jumping on story. Um, it very much is a, hello, I'm Maggie. I run the guest house that you're staying in. Oh, you need to go to the Blue Whale. That's the pub in this town. Here are these characters. Um, it's an absolute jumping on point and it sets up um, ongoing stuff. And then you can then go from that to bloodlust. And then you'll have a good sense of how it is. And then you could, you absolutely should go back and listen to all the older ones because, I mean, Stuart did some stunning stuff. There's some that are really, really, really good. Um, but I think, yeah, if you're going into it as a total newbie, that works really well. Um, or if you're not sure that you want to invest in that amount, I would say something like The Creeping Fog, which is David Selby, and it was Matthew Waterhouse's first ever big finish. Um which is we we did a thing of when me and James took over of we did some with Doctor Who actors because we knew Dark no I wasn't I wouldn't buy Dark Shadows I don't know what it is so we wanted to get people to buy Dark Shadows because Dark Shadows is amazing and so we did when me and James took over we did a run of we got uh, Simon Garrier to write one we got um, Jonathan Morris to write one we got we moved away from the Dark Shadows writers sort of fan writers that uh, Stuart had used and we went for Doctor Who writers who didn't know Dark Shadows, and what we'd say to them is, you're writing an episode of Tales of the Unexpected. So you've got a story called The Blind Painter, you've got a story called The Creeping Fog. Um, there's a run there, and they have Doctor Who actors in, again, just trying to appeal to people, but they are very much done as... So The Blind Painter is about a character called Potofi from the TV series, but The Blind Painter does not rely on you having any knowledge of who Potofi is whatsoever, because his role, his existence as a character is explained in the story, because he's a, he's basically a trickster. He's a, you know, he's a monster. He's cruel and all this stuff. But he's basically a trickster. He's a, he's basically a bit like the toy maker and stuff. He enjoys pulling people's strings. So that's all you need to know for that story. You don't need to know that he first appears in eighteen ninety seven and then he dies in a fire and you don't need to know all that. It's all explained. So yeah, you've got the option either do uh, beneath the veil onwards or pick and choose any that has a Doctor Who actor in because it's written to very deliberately to appeal to new people and that's sort of time you do talk show you're starting to do some theater work um so what was the desire to start writing for theater um so when i moved to london i did i go to some fringe theater basically london's got an amazing fringe theater scene any night of the week you could go and watch a play in a pub somewhere that will be 
new writing often um yeah it could be terrible um you you're in the risk of it being terrible um people might not be being paid to do it um but then also what there is is there's often quite a few short play nights and themed nights and there's a fringe it's like the camden fringe and so on and i kind of slightly fell in love with the world and there was a short play competition called offcut and um but it still exists it's they, but they're in manchester now um and i thought well, it'd be amazing to have something put on the stage and so i got a book of how to write short plays and i did all the tricks that it did and, and i kind of decided and it, it went down really well it was, it was very you know i got an amazing director and cast given to me um and yeah it was just brilliant and but it was um like Louise Jameson came to see it. My mum and sister came down from Yorkshire to see it. But I remember I sat in, because it was, they did rounds. So you were like six plays a night for one week and then a different six plays and a different six plays. And the best ones, the audience voted ones would go through to the final week. And mine went through to the final week. And um, I went to the Saturday matinee because that was when I think Louise came and my mum came. Yeah, I think we all did the Saturday matinee. And... Um, there's a bunch of old women in the front row and in the play, the play is, it's <laughs> surprise. Uh, it's, it's quite funny. And then someone kills themselves. Um, but it's about my hatred of the X factor and, and shows like that. And um, the reaction from the women in the front row who'd spent the whole thing, I think my director had done this amazing job, but she basically turned it into a feature film. I'd written the characters sitting down, she had them moving up chairs with doors and then we're on the bus and we're doing this. Really, really brilliant. So it meant it was really entertaining and really funny. I'd done an amazing cast. Um, and the audience reaction, especially from these women in the front row, when the main character takes off her belt and starts to put it around her neck, just seeing all these women stop laughing and go, <gasps> visit you know that and i was just like oh that's the dream you know tv is brilliant but that's the dream to be there and actually experience that reaction was amazing so i ended up doing quite a few of those um things i've got became because you just made those friends as well and it's really fun and you get to go and watch other people and then your friends you actually worked with ends in something else and da, 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 da. Uh, i did a couple of horror ones that you know really went down well really think master was scary i did some more and again just hearing the reaction and feeling, you know, you're going, oh God, director and actor's there, but they they wouldn't be there if these words I hadn't read were there. And hearing this reaction that I'm causing in people, this visceral emotional reaction. And for me, that's what it's all about. I want you to be emotionally um, affected by my work, whether that's laughing, scared, upset, whatever. Um, I don't want you watching something of mine and going, oh, that was quite good. You know, it's like I want you leaving it going, oh my God, <laughs> I'm freaked out. Or, oh, that was really funny. Um, and obviously you get to experience that with Fringe Theatre because you get to see, feel it happening around you. Why do you hate The X Factor? Um, I love reality TV. So I love Big Brother. They've relaunched Big Brother over here this year and it's brilliant because I totally fell out of Big Brother because it became all about young pretty people. Whereas Big Brother is about people watching such so different generations. I love The Traitors. I've watched, I think, every English speaking version of The Traitors. Um, I love the different variations, but I love all that. The X Factor is three rich people sneering at poor people because there are people who you, we see on the telly that are solely put on the telly for us to laugh at. Now, there have been heats. There's been rounds that we haven't seen. So they know that that person can't sing. And I find that really, really awful. 
because I find it's the it's so often working laughing at working class people, which is so offensive. And um, I wrote a story. So my story is is it's a, I've got the pitch up there. My mate Wendy, she's my, now my mate. We used to in Dark Shadows and stuff. Um, she plays a supermarket worker. And she loves karaoke. She's really fun and bubbly and amazing. And she loves karaoke. And everybody loves her. And everybody tells her she's really good at the karaoke. We don't hear her sing. She's taught so, but then someone sees her in a shopping centre, or they see in a shopping centre they've got heats for, I think it's just called the show in mine. Um, and she goes, to, and she's told, Oh my god, they love me. I'm gonna go on the show. And then she goes on the show and then she sings for us the audience for the first time, and she's terrible. She she can't hit a note. And it's a really clever performance that Wendy did in the play because it can't be jokingly terrible it has to be someone who is trying but just can't hit the nose and what's great is every night when i watched it the audience in the, the theater audience would laugh and then start to feel uncomfortable and then the three judges who you know these three actors who've played all these lovely glorious characters and now playing these three judges rip her to shreds and so she decides well if i kill myself it destroys your show so i get my revenge there's also other stuff going on um but yeah it's, it comes from that i hate that it's laughing at poor people and they are poor. They're always poor people. It's always working class. Um, and, and it's rich people laughing at working class people. And it's not about finding a good singer because you could have told that person privately before putting them on telly, you're actually not very good. You're, you're a great person. Well done. Enjoy your life, but you're not very good. Nothing says a Joe Lids to script more than I'm going to kill myself to get my revenge on you. <laughs> yeah. I'm perfectly well um, uh, just just on the traders i've seen a few different series of the traders too but i think alan cumming should be the butler in every single one of them not just the american one do, do you know, there is that but then i fall in love with all the hosts did you um i love all of them claudia winkerman's astonishing over here um all great in different ways um uh, yeah the aussie bloke's quite hot so that's nice <laughs> He was, he was in a show called Dr. Doctor. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but if you ever see that anywhere, that's a great show. He stars in that. Yep. So what is it that, what is it about you, your upbringing, whatever, that makes you want to make people afraid? Because even, even your Sarah Jane Smith adventures are fairly terrifying. What is it's it not about making them afraid. You? It's not just about making them afraid. It's about creating an emotional reaction. Um, you know, Ghost Watch terrified me, but it's so impressive how it's written and made. Um, seeing things like Saffron Steel and going, I'm not watching Saffron Steel and going, oh, isn't it clever? I'm watching it going, this is terrifying. This is brutal. I'm upset. Um, I'm scared, you know, and it, for me, that's what it's about. And I think it maybe does come from, again, my love of soaps and stuff, where, and Doctor Who, my love of soaps and Doctor Who, where it's, you're watching it to feel emotion. You're not watching it to analyse story structure or to go, oh, that was clever. Um, you're watching it to feel emotion. And I think that's where it comes from for me. Um, but certainly with the Sarah Jane Adventures, I was like, yeah, because I love Doctor Who scaring me, so I want to scare a generation of kids. <laughs> they did, because <laughs> they are now adults and they come and tell me. <laughs> <laughs> so have you ever done love stories then Is it for emotion? Or you just... Yeah. I have done... I love love stories. I think there was a thing of maybe when I was younger, I tended, a younger writer, I tended not to do love stories, partly because 
gay section 28 i wasn't out i had no real interest in male female love stories you weren't writing gay love stories at any point at that point for big finish um so i tended to write a lot more about siblings and best friends um which is a love i love i love the love between two friends um so i've written a lot of i think strong friendships um but as for I've written any romantic stuff. I must have done. There must be in there somewhere. There'd be, there'd be romance in there somewhere. But yeah, I don't think I've ever set out to write an absolute love story. Because I do. So after Big Absence and Big Finish, you came back this year. Um, that connection with Sarah Jane Smith brought you back. Um, yeah. And did, did the Return to Bannerman Road first story. What was it that brought you back? Uh, Sarah Jane Adventures. It was the happiest time of my life. Um there was no way I, I I would have taken no for an answer. I basically, a bit like when they first got Torchwood, I love Torchwood. So I went to them and said, I really, really, really want to write a Torchwood. Um, because it's not like I don't want to write Big Finish anymore. It's that I don't think I can write any more Doctor Who for Big Finish, unless it was a special occasion, like I did the Jackie's short trips. Um, I think I'd really struggle to write a four episode Doctor Who. Um, I don't think I'd be very good at it. Um, and I've, I like to do lots of different things. You know, we talk about the fringe theatre and I'm writing an audio drama and I'm writing a book at the moment. I'm doing, you know, doing all these different things. But when they got tortured, I was like, I adore tortured. I will do anything. Let me write one. And when they got this, I went to them and said, I adore. They said, please, please, please let me write it. Um, and I cared so much. It, it was like, they've got to be in character. They've got to, it's got to be a continuation. It can't just be, a random story that's spinning off from you know something it's 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 got to be the next generation of this of the Sarah Jane adventures um and it's I actually a bit it. Saf- it's actually a bit Sapphire and Steelish isn't it in terms of the time travel and the the play on it yeah. also that's got a romance that's all about a love story my Rani story so I have done one that's an absolute love story about um an alien bloke and that's it's a matter of life and death the picture behind me it's absolutely stolen from a matter of life and death um uh yeah so that was a little story but yeah yeah it was again i wanted it to be i don't think it's particularly scary so it's not always about scary but i wanted to do something that you would you would love the characters um and you'd find it hopefully funny um and then really moving and then hopefully you'd find it the ending quite powerful um which i think people did which was nice it's, it's a great story. It's a great box set. I'm looking forward to the next one. Yeah. Um, so, also, you, my, I don't know. I don't know what's happening in the next box set. Well, I know Luke's back and Mrs. Wormwood's back, but I don't know the stories, so I'm very excited. Mm. Actually, I, we did skip past Torchwood. I should just mention one rule was one of my favorite Torchwoods because it's just <coughs> bonkers. And to bring yeah, I mean, you have James Goss to thank. You have James <laughs> Goss to thank for that. Um, James gave me a list of um, four or five characters that I could write for, all of whom I would have loved to write for, but Yvonne was on the list. And I was like, and of course, at this point, now Yvonne has done so much, you know, we've done all the Tortured One stories and so on. But at that point, obviously, she hadn't been back since Army of Ghosts. Um, And I said, you know, yeah, that would be, you know, every gay's dream to write for Tracy Ann Oberman. Um, And so he, he said, right, you can do an Yvonne story, but it has to be her having a bad night out in Cardiff. And I was like, ooh. And then the thing I did go back to him and go, well, it's got to be lots of characters then. And Barney Edwards cast it so well. So basically got three actors in to play about 40 different speaking parts. Um, 
But yeah, it was it came from James. James, I think me and James work really well because he's very good at concepts and ideas, and I bring the character stuff in a bit more. Um, but it means that what he does is he pulls me back from it just being a character piece. So with that, it was like, yeah, this has got to be funny. This is it's Tracy Ann Oberman. It's got it's going to be fun. And also, you know, I'm writing for Tracy Ann Oberman. It's got to be good. Um, and yeah, it, but yeah, you have a lot. Uh, there's a lot to thank James Goss for for that because he really pushed it to be he said i want the hotel burning down and i was like why he's like i just put, find a way to put it in i want the hotel burning down it'll be funny because i want her running around in a monkey dressing gown or something I was like, it's audio james no one can tell uh but because he kept pushing it it meant right i've got to have a masseur which means actually that's quite funny i can have a little comedy line there and you know and you, so because james pushed for that sort of stuff it meant i was constantly upping the ante to make it as farcical as possible because actually one thing i do tend to find in my writing is i or I really, again realized quite early on I think it was a note from Russell was when you know as with kids TV you often get you always get the note of right you need to lose a page and a half you know and Russell says whatever you do don't cut the jokes you need the jokes cut plot you know find ways to make the plot tighter but don't cut the jokes and I think that's something I've always tried to do is have humor in it because if there's no humor in it you don't care what happens to the characters um Definitely. you know literally you know i've seen short plays about people with cancer you know and you're like i don't care i don't care and cancer's awful and i've got friends you know it's, it's the worst thing in the world it's cancer but i don't care because you the characters are miserable so why should i be invested in them and i think that's something i've always tried to do with my work is with the possible exception of the rapture but since then i think one thing i've always gone into it gone is i you've got to enjoy spending time with these people Otherwise, you won't care what happens to them. And so and that, for me, often is humour. So I often do try and add humour into it so that it then hits when the bad stuff happens. Well, I mean, all great tragedies have that comedy moment towards the end mm. before the big tragedy hits, just to give you that up. I mean, you know, the, the, every musical has the comedy song before the major destruction. Yes. Shakespeare, yeah. Shakespeare has his clowns, his comedy action before the crash. Um, yeah. Forever. That's what what good drama's been. Because you, you may say that um, torture is audio, but I have the strongest picture in my head of Tracy Ann Oberman at the oh. end. Of, it just totally disheveled, covered in sick and blood yeah. and torn. And absolutely, I, 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 mean, I, have I, a, I have a visual image of it in my head clearly. Yeah. At the end of the episode, no, it's it's quite funny. It's um, I do find that interesting with audio. Is that sometimes I am writing a theatre play. Sometimes I'm writing something that I think I don't need to picture this. It's theatre. It's it's it contained whatever. Sometimes I'm writing something like that, Tortured or Beyond Bannerman Road where I'm like, this is visual. This is a visual film or TV thing that we're only seeing, that we're only hearing, but hopefully you're picturing. So I do find that is something I do think about when I'm writing is whether I'm writing that kind of audio drama or that kind of audio drama. And certainly that one, yeah, I was very keen that it, you, you should be able to visualise it. I can very much visualise the pub where Gwen and Andy going into the fight. Um, absolutely can visualise that. I know what pub that is. Yeah. So what's next? What what are you looking forward to in the coming months? Uh, um, TV's been very quiet this year. Sadly, children's TV was hit a lot by COVID. Um, so I was working on a show that then, well, series two of a show called The Demon Headmaster, which then sadly didn't happen. And then I spent all of last year working on a, a show that I think is happening, but budgets have been cut. So they're having to lose a couple of episodes. So fingers crossed, it might, I might get one episode in because I'd written two. Um, 
So, but I've done no TV this year, but what I have been doing is um, audio work. I'm, I've signed up to write a 20,000 book um, novel based on based on a, a series, which is interesting because I don't really like writing prose, but I was like, yeah, I'll give it a bash. Um, and the big thing this year has been, I'm writing a full length play, um, which you know, I'm getting messages for now, because um, it was due in on Monday. Um, and it's, it's absolutely, uh, a very serious topic, but it's very, very funny, and then death. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I got commissioned. Uh, it's paid work, so it's paid to write a theatre play, which is, so I'm doing the dream job. Um, a friend of mine who I worked with years ago on the Fringe Theatre stuff, she's now a producer at a theatre, and she's decided she wanted to produce a, an independent play away from the theatre. So I've got her, I've got a drama tag, but she got out Arts Council funding. So it's it's paid work, but it also means it's structured. It means it's going to happen. So that's lovely. Um, a short film I wrote years ago has just been filmed in Cardiff. Um, a guy called Andrew Creek tweeted he was looking for a sci-fi script, and I sort of went back to him and just went, I wrote this film for somebody a few years ago, and it never got made, or it sort of got half made. Um, you can have that if you want. Um, do what you like with it. So he's just finished filming that, so that's fun. Look forward to seeing that. You'll see that on my Twitter and that I've retweeted a few things. Um, I'm writing an, an original audio thing for a series, for an original, uh, I'm writing an episode of an original audio drama series, which is fun. And yeah, I'm trying to write two spec scripts. I'm writing a, a kids TV idea that I've had um, where I want to write, I want to write something bleak because all kids TV often is very colourful these days. You know, so Jane Adventures, Wizard of Aliens and all that lot. Even Hetty Feather, which was kind of sort of bleak setup, was beautiful all this stuff. And I thought, I want to write something that's set in a really grey, miserable world and it's about kids escaping and finding adventure. Um, so I'm doing that and I'm doing an adult spec script. Um, so yeah, it's just got lots of things going on. Fantastic. Well, listen, looking, I think we've only just scratched the surface of some of your works. There's still a lot more I'd love to talk about in depth with some of the other plays. And maybe um, as we come up to with Random Boys, I might contact you again and say, let's just talk about one play. But listen, yeah, thank you absolutely. So much. Thank you so much for your time. It has been an absolute pleasure and I uh, cured some of my promo. So thank you. Oh, brilliant. No worries. Thank you. It's been fun. The 21st century is when everything changes and we're ready. Obviously. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Torchwood. One rule. I'm standing on an invisible lift. And I'm about to enter Torchwood 3. Hooray. You must be Torchwood then. It's the murders, you see. There's been five in the last two weeks. Well... Murders? That's what the police are for. Oh, I thought you might help me. Oh, bless you, but no. I'm from London. I don't do local politics. Good night. I run a top-secret organisation that protects all of Great Britain from invasion. I have tea with the Queen twice a week. I'm trying to keep you alive and you're behaving like children. In fact, I have had enough of this city. Big finish. We love stories. Oh, oh, happy day. All right, always good to chat with Joe Lister, and it was great for you to have the opportunity to do that for the first time, Philip. I know. Thank you for that. <laughs>
Excellent. All right. That only leaves us to talk about something that we've been listening to, and in my case, something that I'm going to be listening to. Uh, but I can't talk about that yet, Philip, because my list there says it's your turn. Oh, well, it's my turn. I better go then. Well, I am going to recommend something that's just come out. I think it might be the first release of Big Finish for the year. And I was pretty excited about this. It's the the Sontarans versus the Rutons sets, which are coming out one a month, which is an interesting way of doing it. I would have thought it would have been a box set, but they've decided to put out one a month, which is a good way to do it sometimes, except my memory's bad, but we'll see how we go. The first one has come out, um, written by Lizzie Hopley, who we mentioned before. Um, it's the Eighth Doctor and Charlie and Carriz. Um, I think we, we spoke to Conrad Westmus recently, and we spoke to India Fisher recently. Um, I think India mentioned it because it had been released. We couldn't talk, we couldn't talk about it with Conrad, um, though we were aware it was coming. Um, so it's, yeah, just just it it has been better than I expected. Those three together, Paul McGann, India Fisher, Conrad Westmus, are just amazing together. It's a really fun story. It has. I don't give any spoilers away. I won't give any spoilers away. It it, it wasn't what I expected it to be, and what was going on wasn't what I expected. Lizzie Hoppy has really surprised me in terms of how she's portrayed the Suntarans and the Rutans. Um, I think it's, I don't think what's called, it's the Battle of Giants Cause... Causeway. Causeway. Um, so it's set in the past um, in Isle, I think it's Ireland, um, but it's not what you expect because I, I guess this is a spoiler. The Suntarans think that they're Roman soldiers. I guess that's not that's not that you've discovered that in the first scene, so I think it's pretty obvious. Um, so they're Sontorians, I think Charlie keeps <laughs> calling call them. Um, rather centurions, they're Sonturians. Um, beautifully written, some lovely character moments. Cariz gets the whole who he is and why he um metamorphoses is important to the story. So the whole Lizzie's really thought about the character and the traits of the character, and it's a really worthwhile script for Conrad. Which is, yeah, I think you know, when we spoke to him, I think he was a bit disappointed by some of the stuff that he'd, he'd had. He won't be disappointed by this at all because it's a doozy, really worth listening to. So you haven't heard it yet, Dwayne? I haven't as yet, no. Okay. It, it is, it's, a lovely, it's a lovely start to what I think is going to be a great little series of Sontarans versus Rutans. What about Excellent. you? What have you listening to, Dwayne, on holidays? Um, I'm excited about something that I just queued up on my uh, phone, which I'm going to listen to. It's the latest BBC audio release uh, featuring The Third Doctor, read by Katie Manning. It's called Escape the Daleks. So it's written by Steve Cole, and it's, it's supposed to be some kind of thriller. Uh, so uh, do, because of our recent experience with Katie Manning, I'm really looking forward to to hearing uh, the energy that she puts into that, she certainly has lots and lots of energy. I don't know where she gets it from. Um, and I don't know how she sees the scripts because she's blind as a bat. So she must have a huge magnifying glass on script days, uh, on recording days. So, uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. It's uh, the, I think it's the first release from BBC Audio for the year too. So uh, looking forward to that. Escape the Daleks. Yeah, I'm amused by your you talk about our, not our meeting with Katie, but our experience with Katie Manning. <laughs> Interesting choice of language there. It, and, um, oh, okay. Well, yeah, it was an experience. That's for sure. <laughs> I was amused. She uh, mentioned on Twitter too that um, apparently she's going to be doing some more stuff with us when she comes back this year. 
She knows yeah. that. So, so apparently, if you want, this is a, just you all know, uh, we'll be taking Katie Manning to some other places to see where she comes out as she's announced on Twitter. Uh, no, she's wonderful. She is. All right. Can't wait to do it. All right. That is it for the episode this time. Um, it's been great to uh, have Joe Litster on once again. And Philip, it's been great for you to have your company too. It's been lovely to see you too, Dwayne. It's been too long with the uh, little break we had over New Year. Yeah, it has been a while, hasn't it? All right, until next time, we'll catch you later. Bye, everyone. This has been the Sirens of Audio episode 185, Soapy Death, with our guest Joe Lidster and your hosts Philip Edney and Dwayne Bunny. Theme music by Joe Kramer. More about us and tickets to Wendy Padbury live in Sydney and Melbourne in February 2024 from sirensofaudio.com. Comment below to give us your feedback or contact us via email at sirensofaudio at gmail.com or via any one of our socials at Audio Sirens. Thanks for listening, audiophiles. We'll hear you next time. <laughs>